0: Well, having said all that, hopefully you're here in Job chapter 29 by this time. And I want to give us just a quick introduction in terms of where we're headed in the book of Job at this point. We took a little break for a family fellowship, uh, family focus month, right? Family focus, family fellowship is an old thing that's gone. Family focus month in the month of November. And we return in our study as we've been walking through the book of Job. And Job 29, 30, and 31 is really one set. It is Job's final address, but we'll only be looking at verse uh, chapter 29, and we'll look at 30 and 31 next week. But chapter 29 particularly, so in his final address, is kind of the summation of all the things that he would, have, he would like to say, right? And as far as in the progress of the book of Job, this is it. He has been dialoguing with his three friends who have been comforters, and then they have become very poor comforters with accusations, suggestions of his sin, right? With their very closed, tight-lipped system that says, Job, these things don't happen to good people. You're not good people. And here's Job pushing back on all of that, all those accusations. And as a summary statement, all those rounds, three rounds of accusations, of replies, have taken place, and Job is now saying kind of his final things. And this is his final long speech. He'll say a couple things when God shows up, you know, um, in, in, uh, in recognizing uh, his humility before the Almighty God. But this is the last time he will speak in any kind of a long discourse. Chapters 29, 30, and 31. But I pulled out just 29 for us. Um, one, because it's Communion Sunday, and we need to be a little bit swifter. But secondly, because 29 is the bright spot. This is, this is Job still suffering, looking back at what life looked like at one point. It is about his expression of longing. His, his thinking nostalgically about how good his life was. And here's the thing that, that we have to kind of get our minds around. One is that God has already declared the goodness and the righteousness of Job. In fact, Scripture, not just God in the book of Job, but Scripture throughout, whenever Job is mentioned, it is, he is spoken of as one of the great righteous men. In Job... Wait, I'll go to Job last. In Ezekiel 14, uh, chapter uh, 14, verses 14 and 20, Job is mentioned. He's mentioned alongside of Noah, Daniel, and Job. And in a passage that is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, God tells God's people that Jerusalem would be destroyed. And even if these righteous men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were there, their righteousness could not prevent what is about to take place. So he is counted amongst the great righteous men. In James, in the New Testament, James five eleven, it says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Right? So Job, again, in, in the New Testament, as kind of the, the, the example of steadfastness. But here in the book of Job, we had it from the very beginning, in Job chapter 1, verse 1, as well as chapter 1, verse 8, God actually affirms that Job is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So you have, from the lips of God Almighty, a declaration that Job is a good God, an affirmation of his character. And I don't think God is saying that in a temporary or exception Opinion. He's not saying, you know, Job, at least right now, at this very moment, what I'm talking about here, like encapsulate this moment, like Job is a good guy. Later, I don't know if he's going to be, I'm just saying right here, right, he doesn't say all that. He just declares, this is Job to me. Have you considered my servant Job, and this is the kind of servant he is, blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. So if those things, if we give those things, if we grant those things, right, we have said that everyone, every person that is named in the book of Job is uncertain about how Job will end, except God. He has already declared from the beginning that he knows who Job is. He's already declared his righteousness, his uprightness, his fear of God, and that he turns away from evil. And so we already know what God has in store for Job in the end. God has never lost control. He has, has from the very beginning, cast his vote in favor of Job. And so everything that will take place, regardless of the difficulties of the moment, we should suspect will end in everlasting blessedness and security because of what God has already said. But... And here's the part that I would have us to think about in Job 29. If all these things are true, then when Job is speaking in the midst of his struggle and his pain, he's lamenting, sometimes complaining, he is struggling, he is wondering, he is questioning. We should understand that to be part of the fabric of fallen human creatures who are still living by faith in an almighty God. The reason why I'm saying that is I, I think the scriptures leave us some room for lament, for uncertainty, and for us being finite beings who don't always understand what's happening. We we might give it to Job when we read some of the stuff and he's questioning why God has abandoned him and stuff. And we might be, you know, that highfalutin, I know better than you, Job, because I read the end of the story. You idiot. Why don't you just hang on? Why don't you just be more godly? Why don't you be more patient? And yet, Scripture itself affirms that he is the icon, the epitome, the standard of steadfastness. So all the times that he struggles, we should embrace that as a struggle for a man of genuine faith. And that should be something that we embrace with one another, with patience, with love, with carefulness, to see that we may ourselves have faith and struggle. So if that is true, so I'm kind of extrapolating all this down, right? God's declaration of God's character, his sovereign intention. He has never let go of Job, and he has a good intention for him, ultimately. Job doesn't know that. He is a finite being like you and I. He walks by faith, but he doesn't get what is happening. And so there's all this lament, sometimes complaint, all this stuff that is struggling out of his soul. And so in that moment, Job 29 is about his Godward longings. He looks back for a moment and he says, You know how good life was? How good life can be? I had that life. And the reason why this is helpful for us, because it reminds us that longings have a purpose in the human being, in the man and the woman created in God's image. And I got to say, no one says it better than C.S. Lewis. He has a way of thinking about some of these things that I find so helpful. But in a radio address, he once said this, talking about longings and wanting. He says, most people would know that they want. That's how C.S. Lewis, I'll just say it in in my voice because that could distract you. (laughs) Most people would know that they do want, and they want acutely. Something that cannot be had, in this world. Now take that sentence. He is saying that most human beings recognize that there are things that they long for, and they long for it acutely, like it's it's sharp, it's significant to them, and they can't have it in this world. Okay? Let's go on. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country. Or first, take up some subject that excites us. These are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. If you follow his thinking, what C.S. Lewis is pointing out is there is a, a, a longing that is built into our souls. Augustine, the great church father, might call it the, the God-shaped vacuum of your heart. There is something that you think is good, that every human being thinks is good. Every human being thinks that falling in love is a good experience, right? It's the falling out of love that's the rough part, Right? Every human being thinks that it is, it is kind of good to pick up a hobby that you really like or to enjoy some leisure or to travel or to whatever it is that kind of gets you going. We all understand those longings, and yet those longings are intentionally placed in human souls so that it might aim us to something greater outside of ourselves. And I think that's the point. Job's expression of his longings, and it was a long Introduction, But his expression of his longings is meant to drive us to understand that there's something Godward that is at the base of all those things that he misses, that he longs for. And I think what you'll find in, the, in this particular chapter is that they're not directed at circumstances, right? But they're directed towards the Lord. This is the way that I would put it if I were to break down the chapter. Job has a longing to be God's friend, he has a longing to be God's servant. He has a longing to have God's security and a longing to be God's spokesman. All right? And we'll look at this in a moment. As Let me read for us, say a quick prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Job 29. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when His lamp shone upon my head, and by His light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime... When the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard it, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw it, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the, widow, the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night in my branches. My glory fresh with me and my bowl ever knew in my hand. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to Job 29, we ask that you would open our eyes to the value of that longing that we have at the very center of our souls. The desire, Lord, to to have some nearness, that relationship, Um, a sense of security, a sense of hope, a sense of purpose. Those things that we try to fill up with other things, with human relationships with our own families, with our careers, or our schooling, or our accomplishments, or our, our leisures, our enjoyments, our pleasures. And we find them all, Lord, all of these human experiences to be lacking and, and to fall quite short of that which must be eternal. We trust that these are, are, are intentional marks of our image-bearing, that you have created us to desire, you have wanted us to want, so that we might look to our God, and we might find that our God in Christ is more than sufficient. So as we look to the scriptures this morning, we ask that you would enable us to see with spiritual eyes and freshness those good and Godward longings in Job, and might find, Lord, that we've we, we fulfill and satisfy those eternal longings in Christ. So we thank you for this blessed word for this time around your Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen. So we turn to Job 29, and we begin with that first point, longing to be God's friend. It's, uh, it's the first six verses, and verse 1 really is kind of the statement that Job again took up his discourse. So really verses 2 to 6 kind of give us, I think, the first launching point. that that tells us that Job's longing, at the heart of Job's longing, is that he wishes to be God's friend again. It's not that God has abandoned him. Like I said, of all the characters, all the individuals that are named in the book of Job, none are absolutely certain of how things are going to end except God. God in his sovereignty knows exactly how everything is going to take place. So while Job may say, man, I long for his friendship, God's God's kind of sitting there in patience and saying, well, my friendship has never left you, and you'll see that soon enough. But from His perspective, which is often our perspective, it may feel like that. Like, oh my goodness, I wish that the Lord was near again. We begin with when God watched over me in verses 2 and 3. He says, oh, that I were in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me. I just wanted you to catch that, that interesting first opening phrase. Oh, that I were... As in the months of old. So we are probably months into his suffering. Right? Why is he mentioned months? Well, because it was just months ago when his children were still here. When everything was bright and brilliant and worship was, was wonderful. And it was, it was only come and taste and see that the Lord is good. All things were excellent just months earlier. And he just cries out. Uh, our, our English only has O oh as kind of the way to express the emotional outpouring. Oh, you know, and we'll do that sometimes, right? Um, this, uh, this week was an interesting time of sports, whether you're following the World Cup or football or whatever things, right? And if you're watching your team, sometimes you're like, oh, and sometimes you're like, oh, right? And that's really what it is, it's an expression of emotion. And Job has used it several times. Job 19, he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they're engraved in the rock forever. Job is saying, I wish someone would write down my testimony and hear my sigh. Job 23, he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him that I might come even to his seat. He just, man, I just want to be near God and to to get an idea of why this is happening, right? Job 31, 35, oh, that I had one to hear me. He needs someone to hear. He says, here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. In other words, I wish that God would just tell me. If this is my doing, then what is it that I've done? Let me know, right? So this is him saying, Oh, I wish it was as the olden days, as in the days when God watched over me. God used to watch over me, is his point. I miss those days. And I, I love this. He doesn't say, I miss those days. Remember when the kids were young, and we, you know, we went on that vacation, when I ate all that good Mediterranean food, I imagine it's all Mediterranean food in the time of Job, Right? when when we did all that stuff and we had all that fun, he's like, yeah, he can think of all the good things that he has experienced, but no, the first thing that comes out of his mind, off of his hand, if he's writing this, out of his, his lips is, man, I wish I could go back to those days, and we're thinking like, what days, what'd you do, Job? And he's saying, those days when God watched over me, when God was right beside me. I don't miss the days of being young and strong, of being successful in work and business, of traveling the world and enjoying the fruit of my labor and having friends and family close. No, I miss the days when God was on my side. Scripture views fellowship with God like like a shining brilliance or a smiling face. The nearness of God being our good. And that's what Job is trying to express. You know, you guys have probably heard this, this great blessing Right, that comes in the book of numbers chapter six right number six twenty four the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace that 's a wonderful blessing and an excellent i mean uh, if you if you wrote that in in your you know as the, the postscript in your emails and said that that 'd be great that 's a wonderful and excellent blessing but what you may not appreciate about uh, I, I think the language of that, the poetry of that, is when it says, May, may the Lord make His face shine upon you. What do you think of? <laughs> right? Like His face, right? His glory shining down. It, it means that, yeah, like the sun shines down upon us, but it implies in the background, by po- poetic metaphor, it implies that God's smile is upon you. That His blessing, Right? His countenance is the very next verse. Lift up his countenance. The Lord lift up his countenance. Let him smile down on you. His glorious blessing. That's the idea. That's what Job is trying to express. He's trying to say, there was a time when God watched over me. His smile, his face, his lifted countenance shined down upon me. And he says the result of that, verse 3, was when, when his lamp shone upon my head. It's like his lamp was on my head. You know, like those headlamps. And his light With his light, right? By his light, I walked through darkness. No matter how dark things got, I had God, his light, his brilliance, his countenance, his smile upon me. That's what it meant, right? To have God watching over me as my friend. That's verses 1 to 3. And then verse verse 4 I long to be God's friend, not just when God watched over me, but when God. Actually, befriended me. This is, this is the terminology he actually uses. Verse 4 he says, As I was in my prime when the friendship of God was upon my tent. Prime is an interesting kind of uh, word. In the Hebrew, the, the, the word literally means winter, you know? But in our English, that just doesn't read right. When I was in my winter. Right? Because when we think of winter poetically, we mean the end. It's when everything dries up, or not dries up, right? gets cold, withers, and dies. But for an agrarian culture where you're always growing stuff, right? and, and in, a, in a climate that's similar to Southern California, I mean, it's raining today, which is, uh, bless, bless the Lord, I mean, it's a wonderful thing to get a little bit of rain. But usually, even in the winter, it's pretty dry. Right? It's cooler, but it's not ice cold. And so for, for that culture, the winter was the time when the harvest was done, it's post-harvest, and you're just kind of relaxing, reflecting. It's, it's what you picture Christmas day to be, right? You usually saw this that. It, but it's supposed to be relaxing, you know, hanging out. When friends or family are close, that kind of thing. And that's what he's talking about. When I was at that moment when things were good and settled and peaceable and quiet, That's when the friendship of God was upon my tent. And it's that word for friendship that is translated intimate friend in in Job 19.19. The idea is is that God was Job's friend intimately. He hung out with him in his tent. Abraham was called the friend of God in Isaiah 41. Moses spoke with God face to face as a friend would speak to a friend, right? In Exodus 33. And Jesus himself, right, in John 15, 15, says, I now call you friend, right? Jesus makes the point, you're not just my servants. I don't just call you slaves. I call you friend. There is an intentional relational connectedness that God has for his people. And Job senses that. In his faith, he recognized that. He remembers when God watched over him. He was beside and keeping, you know, kind of protective care about him. He remembers when God hung out with him. When the fellowship was near, like a friend hangs out with a friend in his home. And he remembers all the blessings that came from God's nearness in verses 5 and 6. It says, When the Almighty, speaking of His power to do and to create, was yet with me, when my children all around. I love it for all the things that he has lost. The thing that his mind and his heart gravitate towards first in terms of the blessing of God were his children. And how they, as a blessing, were near to him, right? And he says, "When verse six, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil." Not necessarily the terminology we would think of for blessing, right? Like oh, butter, like you know, let's let's lather up my path with butter, Lord, and let oil pour out from the rock. But you get what he's saying. The idea of butter is curds of milk, and it implies plentiful food and drink. Right, it means that God had based everywhere we went, the Lord provided for us all that we needed and abundantly. So, the streams of oil coming out of a rock—that the idea was was the most most useful thing that was on the planet at that time. That was oil, right? Usually olive oil. And the reason why I say that because oil was used for cooking. Right, we still use oil for cooking, for lamps, so all the night light. Right, that they had were lamps, and they would use oil for that. It was used for the anointing of skin, so used for some healthcare purposes, and so it was the most useful, right, utility that you could possibly have. And as a resource, he is saying, Man, it's like it's like a rock with streaming oil. Rocks don't stream stuff like that. Right? That was the miracle of the Exodus journey. The rocks giving off water and stuff. So, that's nuts. But it's like, it's like a rock that's providing oil, every useful thing that I would need. And it's like everywhere we go, it was like butter, right? It was like God's providing goodness and food and sustenance. He's saying, that's how good it was when God was with me and God blessed all the things around me. You know, let me just say this as a side note. God being the rock is an is is often used metaphor in the Old Testament, meaning that He is stable, secure, and movable and something that you could rest upon. And then later, it would be the rock in Exodus. It would be the rock from which water would flow. An impossible and wondrous thing. And then even later still, by the time we get to 2nd, 1 Corinthians 10, it says that Christ was that spiritual rock. And I want you to understand because it's a difficult verse to understand just in the straight reading of it. It's not saying Jesus was a rock and then he kind of followed them. He's saying that he was that spiritual rock. If there is a rock that provided, it is God, and Paul is equating that God of provision in the Old Testament with Jesus our rock, our savior. And the point is the longings of Job reveal that what he is what he was desirous of was not primarily the blessings. But it's the nearness of God that brought all of those things. Think about the things that make you anxious about your life right now, right? Maybe it's finances, maybe it's certain relationships, maybe it's security at work, or worries about grades in school, and where are you going to go? What you're going to do? Where you're going to live? How are you going to do it? Right? Can you afford this? Can you do that? Think of all of those things that you become anxious about, that I become anxious about. And when Job, after losing all of it, looks back, the things that he could think about are children and how good God was to provide generally all things needful. I think at the end of our lives, when we meet at our deathbeds, I don't think we'll look back and go, "Oh man." oh man, I, I'm still anxious about paying my bills. You know? Oh man, I, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make that payment. Or, or man, I wish I got a, another degree. You know? I was just short what, a little more. I could have got that degree. I, I don't think we're going to care. I think all of a sudden, things get to the most basic level. And when we think about who God is, we're thankful that God watched over us. That He befriended us. That he blessed us. And it's not the particulars that matter so much. It's that God is for us. It, that's what it means that Job longs for God to be his friend. right? And, and we took a long time because that, that's the base. That's the most significant. He begins there and then he flows out to all these other things. The second is that he has a longing to be God's servant in, in verses 7 through 17. And this is long, but I think it's a, um, we can work through this Oh, rather quickly He begins by talking about How he was an honored leader He got to serve the Lord And he got to serve Him in certain ways Verse 7-10 through 10 says this When I went out to the gate of the city When I prepared my seat in the square The young men saw me and withdrew The age rose and stood the princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouths, and the voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. So, different categories of men as he goes out to the gate of the city. And then I know that means so little to us the idea that you go out to the gate of the city. I'm going to go out to the gate of the church. You'd be like, all right, see you later, right? Who cares about going out to the gate of a city? Well, the gate of a city was the center of the city's life, it was the heartbeat. It was where everyone came through to do business, and everyone came out if they were leaving, right, to do other stuff. So it is the gate of the city where the merchants bought and sold stuff. It is the gate of the city where the elders or or the judges would make judicial decisions and help keep the peace. It was the gate of the city where the governing authorities, they took a seat and oversaw civic responsibilities. So when... When Job says, I missed those days when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, he had a seat in the square. He was one of the most, if not the most significant and honored individual in his city. And we know that from how everyone else reacts. Young men see him and they withdrew. So the idea is, here's Job and he arrived towards his seat. In the uh, in the city gates, and as he's coming in, the young men are horsing around like young men would do, you know, high fiving and talking about you know this thing and that. And then Job is coming, and then they, they all withdraw. They they make a they open a channel for him to walk by. The aged, even the older ones, they'll rise. And they'll stand as Job takes his seat. We do that in our courtrooms, right? The Honorable Judge Nam Park is, is, uh, is arriving. Is that what they say? Right? The bailiff says that. And everyone, please rise. Everybody rises. And we sit down. We're at weddings, right? We rise when the bride comes out. It's a, it's a, it's a rising to honor the individual that is there. And the young men would do that. The age would do that. The princes refrain from talking. Princes are talking. Hey, I'm a prince, right? And they're talking. And then they'll refrain, and then they'll put their hand over their mouth. It is like that moment, you know, when there's a crowd and we're talking, and then you say something kind of, you know, I don't know, that that you probably don't want to say out loud in front of everybody. And yeah, that's when I was picking my notes, right? And everyone got quiet, and then everyone heard that. It's that, and you put your hand over your mouth. Like, oh, I don't want anyone to hear. I, I don't want Job to hear this. And the voice of the nobles was hushed. They lowered their voices, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth, meaning that out of reverence, they felt like, dude, I don't know what to say to this guy. He was honored. Everybody stopped talking. Everybody in the presence of this great man. And he was a great man. We know that because in Job 1.3, it says that he was the greatest of all the people of the East. So he's an honored leader. But the question is, why was he honored? And it's because he was a good servant of the Lord. <clears throat> Look at verses 11 to 13. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. In other words, they, when they hear something from Job, they say, oh, that's a blessed word. And when the eye saw, it approved. It's like when Job does something, it's like, okay, I commend that. I think that's a good idea. Why? 12, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The ethic of compassion, of love, and care for those that are vulnerable that resided in him as a God-fearing man. It was something that, 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 that was intentional on his part. That he cared for those who were, were incapable of necessarily taking care of themselves. And so verse 13, the blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. It means the guy in his deathbed, as Job visited, he would say, God bless you, Job. I'm thankful for you. Before he would die. He says, I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. He'd visit and help the widows, and they would say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord for servants like you, Job. Right? He was a blessing to the dying, and he cared for the widows unto their joy. And then later on, verse 15 and 16, we would say, he cared for the, the blind and the lame. But the whole point is that he was a good servant, that he honored the Lord in his care for those um, that were placed underneath his care, his protective care. He acted like God's emissary and he did a good job. He was, furthermore, a righteous protector, in verses 14 through 17. Look at verses 15 through 17 first, and I'll go back to verse 14. He says, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. Great expression, right? The blind didn't know what to see, and I would help them to see it using my words and my help. The feet of the lame. Those individuals that couldn't walk, I would help them out. I would get them where they needed to go. I was a father to the needy, verse 16, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. In other words, I stood up for individuals that I had no no other connection with, right? It wasn't just me looking after my own. I looked after strangers because their just cause deserved me to search out exactly what had taken place. And then verse 17, he went so far... As to fight the unrighteous. He says, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. So you can imagine, like, these beasts of prey, ah, like biting, right? These vulnerable individuals, about to swallow them, right? And he fights them. He breaks their fangs and he makes them drop them. It's a beautiful illustration of, uh, of his protective care and how he, in his righteousness, sought to do that which is good. And I say righteousness, because go back to verse 14. Verse 14 is interesting to me, because in between verses 12 and 13, right, whereas there's these wonderful expressions of delivering the poor, fatherless to the needy, right, blessing the one that's dying, um, rejoicing the, the widow in her distress, and then being eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, father to the needy, searching out the just cause of him who, who he didn't even know, Right, and all of that, sandwiched between those statements is this verse, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. And I pull that out because, especially in the Old Testament, righteousness is often paralleled right with, with compassion, mercy, and love. In other words, it seems that as far as God is concerned, your righteousness has a purpose. Not just that you are declared innocent, or that you declare innocent, right? Others, if you're a judge. But that you do something to help, to protect. You think about Micah 6, 8. He has told you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, period. No, and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So you have this, this kind of sandwich, this statement of his righteousness and justice. Job understood his right standing with the Lord Right? As a means and as a purpose to care for those that couldn't care for themselves. I mean, especially as New Testament believers, we should hear that clearly. We are declared righteous, right? God the judge has cast the righteousness of Christ to cover us because Christ has paid for our penalties in full. But the result of that is not just congratulations, enjoy your eternal life. You know, live like everybody else, but try to do it in the cleanest way possible. It is to serve him in a way that looks like what Job is trying to do to be eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, father to the needy, to search out the cause of strangers that need help, to break the fangs of the unrighteous so that he would drop his prey. Right? God's righteousness is meant to display not just his righteousness, but loving service and courageous defense. Matthew Henry once said this, because Job is then a great man, but with all of this said, I think it tells us he is a good man. But this is what Matthew Henry says about being great and good. He said, if a great man be also a good man, and you guys understand what I'm saying by the difference, right? Great meaning everyone recognizes how great he is, right? Good being that from his soul, from his heart, he's a good person. He is is a good person like God is good. He says, if a great man also be a good man, His goodness will be much more his satisfaction than his greatness. I love that. In other words, Job remembers with longing his capacities of being a good man. That's what he missed. Yes, he was a great man. People, everybody be quiet. Everybody got out of the way. Everyone marked him out. But as far as he was concerned, his righteousness, right? His justice was not merely legal. It, It established that he had an opportunity to do good. To represent God, to be kind, to love, right? There's a longing that is appropriate to one that knows God. It, it resulted in leadership, honored leadership, and service, service that was good. And God, God defined goodness. And it was righteous in terms of how he protected and cared for those who couldn't care for themselves. So here's the third one, longing to have God's security. This is short, verses, uh, verses 18 through 20. And, and, and unfortunately, it doesn't really fit our... See, his longing to be God's friend, longing to be God's servant, longing to be... Nah, longing to have God's security. So, so I don't know, maybe, maybe you could rethink this and, and make a better outline, but that verses 18 to 20 is just about how Job sees, right, what he thought life would be like. This is what is so interesting to me about 18 to 20. Look at verse 18. It says, Then I thought... I shall die in my my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. So it is, first of all, about how he was thinking then. Job is saying, back in those days, right, when God was my friend, when I was his servant, I used to think this way looking forward. This is him recognizing how he thought, what, what his heart meditation was. And the first thing he said was that, I shall die in my nest. He believed, he thought to himself, he's going to have a warm ending. Nest is great. I think our term that is maybe equivalent in our English today would be home. Because when you think about home, like if I say, hey man, what are you doing for the holidays? And you say, oh, I'm just going home. Right? Some of you might go, man, I'm just going home. And that kind of tells you something about your attitude towards home, right? But a lot of you guys will say, oh, I'm just going home. And you mean it like it is a peaceful, good, and excellent place. And Job is saying, this is what I imagined. Back in those days when God was near to me, I thought to myself, man, I'm going to die in my home. I'm going to die in my nest with comfort, security, a place of protection and belonging. I shall die surrounded by loved ones close by my side and everything being good and established and what it should be. He thought he'd have a warm ending. The second thing he says in the second part of verse 18, and he says, and I shall multiply my days as a sand. Not just a warm end, but a long life. The phrase he uses is I shall multiply my days as a sand. You know, like every once in a while, I was at a conference and then they'll fill a jar with like, I don't know, what it is, stickers or little badges, and they'll say, if you guess, if you get, you know, take a guess at how many are in there, and if you get the closest, then you get to win this set of commentaries, or whatever it is, right? Um, Can you imagine if someone did that with a jar, and it was just filled with sand? If you would guess the number of grains of sand Right? In this jar You'd be like, oh, man I don't know, two 2 million? I, I wouldn't know what it would be But I'd hate to be the guy that has have to count it Right? Like, okay, let's see uh, oh, Okay, yeah, yeah That's 10,000 in, in that cup And I think there's about 30 cups, should we just estimate? No, dude, you gotta get the exact amount Okay, let's get the exact amount One grain, two grain. It takes forever See, that's the whole point of talking about sand. That's why when, when, when God tells Abraham, your descendants will outnumber the grains of sand on the shores of the sea, that it's, the, the point is not for Abraham to go, no kidding, Lord, let me see. One, two, three. Oh, the wind! One, two, right? The point is for him to say, how innumerable. And Job is saying, this is how he thought of his life. He says, back then, in the security of feeling the nearness of my God, I thought, I'm going to have a warm end. I'm going to have a long life. It's like when Jack tells Rose, you're going to go on, and you're going to make babies and watch them grow. You're going to die an old lady warm in your bed. You guys, I know that's from. That's right. <clears throat> Third, right? These are, these are short phrases. But in verse 19, he says, um, My roots spread out to the waters. With the dew all night on my branches. He's saying, if you think of me as a tree, I'm that kind of tree that like will spread its roots deeper and deeper until it hits water. Have you guys driven like into like Palm Desert, that area? you're, You're driving out in the desert, right? And then most of the desert is desert looking, you know? It's like some cactus and some stuff and some Joshua trees, right? And then when you get near Palm Desert, it is just lush. Like there's a small patch along the freeway where you're like, how is that even possible, right? It's like 120 degrees outside Why is there a green patch? It's because they have something called an aquifer Aquifer, aquifer They have water, right? Underneath the land Like this flowing way deep in the ground And some of the plants Some of the trees in particular in the shrubs, they've grown deep enough roots That it taps down to the water so it's it's areas where nobody goes out and you know and sprays water on them regularly. And like I said, it gets upwards of like 120 degrees. How do they flourish? Well, they flourish because their roots have gone deep. That's his illustration. He is saying it's it's I'm like the tree whose roots have gone deep. And remember that area of Palestine, right? Of Israel, that area is just it's like here. It's arid, you know. And then talk about the wilderness. They mean the wadis, and sometimes they dry up in the summer, right? Like. Flowing rivers, dried up during the summer, come back when the rains come, etc. So he is talking about the, the stability, the fullness, the flourishing. And even at night, his branches are out and he gathers the dew, right? Wonderful expression, poetic expression, of saying that his life is full. It's flourishing. Maybe flourishing would have been a better better term here. A warm in, a long life, a flourishing life, right? And a strong life. The last thing he says in verse 20, my glory fresh with me and my boat ever new in my hand. When things were good, when he was young and strong and, and God was with him, this is how he thought about how life would end. It would be warm. How long life would go. It's like the days would be like the number of grains on the seashore. His life is full and vibrant because he had tapped the waters beneath the surface. He was flourishing. And then there was this fresh glory and a bow in his hand. The word for glory, kavod, is an interesting one because at least one origin of that of that word, one thought of, of where that word comes from, is a word that can be translated "heavy organ." That doesn't sound that glorious, I know. But there are numerous times in the Old Testament where um, our English would translate the same word, um, kavod, for um, and it will translate it as the liver. And the only reason I bring that up is because I think that's, that's kind of what he's getting to. I don't think he's talking so much about his glory was upon him. I think he's saying that, man, my, my internals, right? My internal life, that which is inside of me, my organs, right? it was. Fra- I was good and strong feeling. And my bow in my hand was like it was new. And he meant both that he had strength of, of freshness, of power... And he had undiminished skill in terms of his capacities right, to fight and to do what needed to be done. This is what I thought my life would be. There's something that, that is super sad about that statement. right? Of Job saying, this is what I thought life would look like. And it went a totally different direction. Because back then, I thought in my longings, looking back, in my nostalgia... I thought this is what life is like when God is with me. The thing is, and this is C.S. Lewis's point, his longings are aiming him towards God. Even when all things are gone and things are not what he had hoped for, nevertheless, the fact that there was something to hope for, there's something to say, man, that was good and that it can be good, it aims at something that must be more than a simple end. We are not just biological creatures that will expire. The longing is built into us so that we look heavenward, Godward, and we long for something more desperate and deeper and significant than simply it was good for the moment. Because all of the pleasures of this life, all the blessings of this life, are good for the moment. But the momentary nature of them is meant to suggest that we're built for something deeper and longer and more eternal and significant. The longings will aim us to a Savior and to eternal life. Let me give you the last one really quickly so we cover the whole section at least. Verses 21 through 25. The last thing he says is kind of a repeat in terms of the topic, but I think we could break it down into two parts. Verses 21 to 23, him as God's counselor. It is about his words. He said, men listened to me and waited. They kept silent for my counsel. After I spoke, they didn't speak again And my word dropped upon them It, it flowed down like, like the soft rain Outside, that's the language there They waited for me as for the rain See, I told you And they opened their mouths as for the spring rain He's saying that, that his, his Words were gracious His counsel was good And they appreciated it How different right? That life months ago Versus him and his dialogue With his friends now Every time he says something, they have something to say back. Every time they accuse him and defends himself and he says something, then they come back at him. So different than what it, what it is currently. And that's the point. That he longs for that, that time when he was God's spokesman. When he spoke God's truth and people appreciated it. When he was God's ruler. verse 24 and 25. I smiled on them when they had no confidence. I love that. He's saying that I smiled at them when they're lacking confidence, when they just fumbled the ball, right? And they think the game is over. They look over at coach, and coach smiles at them, just to let them know, let's go. It's all right. We still got time on the clock, right? Unless you're playing soccer, and then you don't know if there's time on the clock. It's one of the most ridiculous <laughs> sports. I, I don't know what's happening with that. Anyway, right? I smiled on them, and they had no confidence. The light of my face, they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. With a gracious and careful leadership, he was God's representative leader, ruler. He was a godly man, with God-honoring purposes, and with God-blessed results. That's his point, right? He misses how he was used of God as a counselor, how he was used of God as a ruler, and how he did it so well. And whenever he looks back at that fellowship with God and all the the wisdom, the generosity he got to share that came from the Lord and was spent out towards others, he realized, man, he tasted something that was so good and maybe he didn't appreciate it at the moment, but it was so good, and it's gone. And the whole point is that that longing aims to something that is as good or better. Christ is the better. Christ is the thing that is going to come and satisfy and fulfill all of these needs. See, when we talk about longings, right? This longing to be God's friend, to be God's servant, to have security, to be his, his, his servant, his servant his spokesmen, etc. These are good and excellent. These are things that Job looks back and says, man, I wish I was back in those days. And that's fine that he thinks that, but he needs to not dwell in the, I wish it was this way, but to look forward to what he can have in his fellowship with God. Now listen, we need to be very gracious to him. He's in the midst of his suffering and nothing has has changed. But as we find ourselves as new covenant (coughs) believers in the midst of our suffering, we recognize that all these things, whether it's friendship, service, recognition, right, security, um, mission, ministry, all of these satisfying, blessed things that we might want and desire and have a longing for, they must be satisfied in Christ. Otherwise, they, like Job, will find ourselves in a moment going, man. I wish it was like that. Because in this life, it will be great and it'll be terrible. It'll be great and it'll be terrible. God has not promised just this easy trajectory where we slowly go up the slope and things get better and better and better. No. It'll be up and down, but the person that we have and the satisfaction of all these Godward longings is is in Christ. And we recognize that all the things that we desire are really eternally satisfied in Him. We have the capacity to face all the difficulties of this present moment. That's... That's how we are to look at these longings, these nostalgic longings of the past. Let me read you one last thing. Christopher Ashe has this tremendous statement about this chapter. He says, It is a mark of grace when a desperate longing for a lost happiness turns out to contain within itself the seeds of a future destiny. He's saying there's something so gracious about this moment in Job's story. Because as we're thinking about this, and we're going, oh, man, I'm hurting for you. Because yeah, life was good. Right now, and and once we get to chapter 30, we're going to see, right now, what is it? It's the opposite of that. It's the darkness. It's the emptiness. It's the pain. And we're suffering along with Him. But there is a mark of grace when the desperate longing for a lost happiness turns out to have the seed of an eternal destiny and joy of fulfillment. When within itself, that longing points to a future destiny of absolute fulfillment. That is what we have in Christ. That's what we have in God. Not just a temporary, momentary, right, light affliction, but the eternal weight of glory to come because He has died for us and we celebrate our life.